We're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture you may be familiar with. I, I believe most people are. There's a few portions of Scripture that um, they just settle your heart. They just are your foundation. They're a, a processable, a reasonable a, a framework that you can work through things. And that's going to be Proverbs chapter 3. And, and I want to start it with some things that I think are very important to all of us. Uh, some thoughts and some questions. Not meant to, you know, um, in any way point a finger, but really made to stir some consideration. And we have this thing called New Year's resolutions, right? You guys don't attempt a failure at the first of the year, do you? I hope not, you know. But there are things that we should be thinking about. And is it possible through the course of life, through the last year, we could say, to forget God is there? Is it possible for life to become so routine that we're just going through the motions? See, it's good to stop and to look around and to kind of take inventory of your priorities. Because I believe as we would contemplate and consider those questions I've presented, we would have to look back circumstantially over the last year go, yeah, there was a stretch there that I was just into recreation. Or, yeah, there was this thing I was just locked in on my vocation. Or yeah, I was this, I really didn't pray much. I wasn't really running away from God, but I wasn't really consciously aware of his presence. And I think it's healthy to take inventory of your priorities, agreed? Because I, I think that's how we, we get a healthy reset. I, I ask myself, am I on the right track? Am I, am I headed the right direction? Because it's better to make frequent, intelligent adjustments on the travel, right? We had, uh, how do I phrase this? We got to be a part of what I'm now calling the Southwest Airlines Circus, okay? <laughs> Barnum and Bailey knows where their stuff's at. Southwest has no clue. We're pilots people or anything around. And I, I'm not bashing them. They, have, they know what they're not doing now. <laughs> but in that adventure, on our trip to San Jose, oh wait, no, San Diego, which I assume still there, but we didn't get there. We had the opportunity to rest and relax in San Jose, rent a car, and drive over Donner back through Reno and to to Boise, which is, we love road tripping. I mean, what a deal. We got to road trip with the brand new car and gave it back to the owner when we got home. It was, I didn't have to make payments on it. It was a really sweet deal, really. But on that, you know, I can't just be going along hoping I end up in Boise from Mountain Home. There's a point as we're traveling, we realize, man, we got to, where, where, where's this road turn? And, and if you've lived, I've lived here all my life, we were making that trip um, as, a, as a child. My dad was going back to visit relatives, and, and we've been over that route many times. It's familiar to me. But you know what? When you're coming up on an intersection, you're going, do we take this one or the next one? Are we sure? But your mind says, yeah, yeah, this is this one. But your, your, your reality says, why are you so sure? And so we found ourselves not only looking at the GPS and conference considering and, and kind of thinking. They're like, I want to make sure that I end up where I want to be. Just hoping you get there is a risky travel plan. And I have to say, being a pastor for 30 years now, there's many Christians just hope they get there. 
They just hope that it all works out. They have, that's a very risky spiritual travel plan. And I want to present to you today a portion of scripture of the Bible that's like a travel map. It's like a, a GPS route page. You know what I mean by the route page? It's not just the, the line on a map. It's when you can click on it and you can, it tells you when you turn and what the next one is and what the next one is and you can kind of see where it's taking you. Well, Proverbs chapter 3, we'll read through it right now. We'll go from verse 1 to 12. And then what I'd like to do after that is we'll come back and we'll look at it at the way it's paired. It actually is formatted, if you would, by thought as well as by visual arrangement in, in, in kind of two-verse two grouping, if you would. So let's begin. Let me read it with you. We'll read through. I'm reading out of the New King James, so let me just read it. You follow along in your Bible, and then we'll go back and jump in. My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands. For length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart and so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Verse 7. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Verse 11, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. All right, well, if you would just return to verse 1 with me. I want to go through this. Like I say, these are so there's such a reference point. And, and I want you to understand the first thing we see is what's conveyed so consistently and beautifully through the Bible. It's not about the knowledge of God that you may have. It's about the relationship with God that you have. You know, many people have a knowledge and at least a willingness to accept the concept of a creator, but God doesn't present himself as this distant, you know, being with the capacity and the power and ability to make things. He presents himself as father. He presents himself as, as one you can know personally and closely and deeply. And you see, as it starts, it says, my son, do not forget my law. This wisdom is being brought forth. Law, in this context, is speaking of um, precepts and direction and instruction. My son, don't, don't forget these things, but let your heart keep these commands. You want to keep his direction, his instruction, his way of living life. Let the heart hold those close. I find it interesting because the mind is often contrary to the heart, correct? You know, unless you're born again and have a regenerate, literally speaks of a new heart, your heart is already distorted anyway. The Bible says it's actually evil, wicked, and goes its own way. But when you're born again, the Bible tells us the Holy Spirit, God himself, indwells our heart, takes up residence. And it's not the cardio part. It's not the pump. You understand that, right? The Bible speaks of heart as, as the bowels, meaning the innermost part of your being. In the innermost part of your being, in your heart, you know, hold these things close. Let your heart keep my commands. My mind is too uh, circumstantial, too affected by emotion. They both need to be functioning, agreed? 
But we need to realize that, you know, it's, it's the, the, the heart is when we hold things deep. That way when something comes along, oh, maybe I could do this. No, because deep down, this is what I know I should do. The inner man, the seat of emotion where we are, you know, hold these things and value these things. And notice it goes on to tell you for length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. It doesn't mean, you know, you have a 26-hour day, of course. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have longevity in your life. It's not a principle that you say, well, I just do everything God's way and I'll live to be 112. You know what I'm saying? It, it, what it's conveying to you is quality of life and his presence bringing about the truth of life. And so as we are holding that length of days and long life and peace, they will add to you peace. Peace speaks of, we often think of peace related to the lack of conflict, the lack of disruption. Agreed? I mean, that's how we may define it. But peace is actually rooted also in purpose. So you and I, we as born-again Christians, we are at liberty. We've been freed from the weight of sin. We are at liberty to, to live the way God designed us to live. Previously, although I, as a, before as a Christian, I claimed liberty. I claimed freedom. I don't go to church like all those insecure people. I get to go do whatever I want to do. I'm my own man. I can be what I want to be, go where I want to go. The lie was, I was trapped to that identity, or that peer group, or whoever, whatever it may have been for you. You're actually not at liberty. The one thing I couldn't do was the very thing I needed to do. I couldn't have a relationship with God because I didn't want to be known as a church folk. Well, it was a different word then. I just have cleaned it up for church. So you see what I'm saying? It's a weird thing in this world. To experience freedom and liberty and peace, it comes through a relationship. As my son, don't forget the father. Understand how you're created, why you're created, and the purpose he's given you. Don't let religion distract you. Don't let certain functions blind you. It goes back to what I mentioned to start our time. God is about relationship. Your relationship with him and this peace, this completeness, it just speaks of soundness and, and welfare and contentment is the result, as we see, of keeping his commands. Not because he's overbearing, but because he's overly loving, we could say. He is unconditionally loving. And so he doesn't hold you back and keep you from experiencing things that are better for you. That's what we think, Right? Well, I don't want to go to church because then I won't be able to party with my friends and go do other things and do this and that. Guess what? God is not ripping you off. He's protecting you. When he says, listen, don't go this way. You experience a peace when you have this awareness of his presence and the confidence that his way is the right way. I want to hold on to these things. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 3. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Let these things not depart or leave them behind, or let them alone. Interesting, isn't it? Don't let mercy and truth leave you, or be away from you. Bind them around your neck. It conveyed a public thing in a way in that culture where that would be, it would be, be evident, invisible, almost like wearing a necklace that said mercy and truth, you know, but they didn't wear necklaces that, in that sense, not for fashion. So... Check this out. Let these attributes be seen in you. 
Write them in your heart and let them be expressed in your life. What attributes? Mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Agreed? Grace is getting what you don't deserve. The very title and definition of grace means you didn't deserve it. Mercy is, is not getting what you deserve. Uh, as a kid, um, my older brother, who's one year older than me, um, was just a kind of a brute. And the way you deal with the brute is you run faster. So I just ran faster. But I also, I know this, you're sitting down, you can handle this one. As a kid, I was kind of mouthy. Shocker, right? I mean, shocker. So I would say a few things to my brother and just like, start shifting gears. But he outplayed me one time. And as he's got me on my back with his knees on my arms, and he is like just checking the mobility range of a person's head when they're on their back because he's just punching down. And I'm wanting what? Mercy. I didn't deserve it. I, des- I was getting what I deserve, actually. And, you know, I know that's not the way the world is now, but back then, your fist and your face worked out a lot of different problems. So here I'm like, I want mercy. I didn't deserve it. I deserve the punishment because of my actions. And here he's saying, in your character, he's not just talking about the mercy of God. He is in the sense that that would be expressed through your life, but not getting what you deserve. Express the other definitions or descriptions of it. Kindness, goodness, favor. Does your life express that? Man, I'll get to you get in your grill real quick because it's the start of the year. I should do it. So guys are not known for being kind. Matter of fact, that's the way it is. They got what they deserved. It's true. It's true. It's just not merciful. Does you see the difference? The two are very important together. Truth on its own can be painful, cold, and, and brutal. Mercy on its own can, can be too vacillating, too unstable. It, it takes the two synchronized together. So we're not just harsh, matter-of-fact men, but we're merciful men as we bring the truth forward. It's not a gender thing. I know some of you ladies know this real well. You're pretty good at being hard-nosed too. Not thinking of anybody in particular, but just knowing it's a reality. So, do you see? Let these be seen in you. Here's how I would say it concerning character. Shutting out, for mercy, shutting out all forms of selfishness and hate. Shutting out all forms of selfishness and hate. Because even as a Christian, it's still resident within you. We go through the process of purification, or we could say sanctification, being set apart for his purposes, being the old passing away, the new becoming new. And, and that just, it comes up. And one, I think, one thing I think is so essential for our lives individually is learning how to be honest with ourselves. Because it's really painful. Some of you are too truthful with yourself, you're not merciful. Some of you are merciful, so merciful you're not truthful. Finding that blend and you are own working through emotions and logic and relationships and needs, learning to work through that with an awareness. I, I just I just want to shut down all forms of selfishness and hate. Because they tend to bear they tend to grow and, and they don't produce things anything beneficial. For truth, I would suggest and present it to you this way. 
shutting out all deliberate falsehood and all hypocrisy, conscious or subconscious. Do you realize that I and you and every one of us have subconscious hypocrisy? We're a walking contradiction sometimes. We, here's this is a classic. I know it's, it, was, it was probably first service today that has acted this way. Yeah. We didn't have one. <laughs> so, um, so you're at church and everything's cool and good and you got your, your lobby face on and your worship smile and you kind of go through things and you, know, you, you get in the car and you start driving home and, and you're uh, just you and the wife. Kids obviously don't listen to you anyway. You've, you've seen that in some instructions, so you're not worrying about it. But then you're talking about that person in service or that situation that come up, and, 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 and they're sitting there going, wait a minute. You were just really nice to them, and now you're up front seat throwing them under the bus. Not, I'm just creating an imagined scenario that probably never happened. Okay, no one would have ever done that. But just suppose that might have happened. Okay, let's just, I can't lie on the first day of the year. I know it happens. I know it's taken place. And it's a level of hypocrisy that's justified by rationale. But it still is what it is. Truth is shutting out all that stuff and learning how to process real issues and important things in such a way that God is honored. You know how I've, what a little, little method that's helped me in this area? I always want to remind myself that if it's Kim and I, there's one more person in every conversation. So when you finish that kind of critical assessment of some situation, you can just say, so what do you think, Jesus? And you're going to go, I don't think I want to throw that out there. But you know he's with you. Do you see what I'm saying? It's learning as we go along to be just straight up honest, you know, aware. And I want to, I want to shut out all deliberate falsehood. And I don't want to lose this thing that's so important because it says, bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, and so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. High esteem there is speaking of... Uh, it's like good understanding. It, 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 it conveys knowledge, wisdom, um, having a good sense, if you, if you would, if, if you know what I mean by that phrase. Some people have, you know, you've, maybe you've heard this, some people have common sense. Some people have uh, what I call mechanics sense. So some people can be, read a book on how to be a mechanic. They don't have mechanic sense. They just don't, it isn't going to work. So we use this term a lot, attaching to various different topics. But it speaks here in high esteem of just having that sense of goodness, that people have a sense of who you are. That you and I, we reflect the very nature of God, and even God himself sees his work in you. And so he's saying, as we, as we learn to walk in these truths, we're transformed, we're changed from the inside out. And, and finding favor, it, it doesn't, it's not the same as partiality. Do you understand that? For God does not show partiality. He doesn't elevate one above another because that person obeys more. It's just that when you, okay, just think about this, parents. When your child does something that you've trained them to do for the benefit of them, and you know there was a little bit of sacrifice in their obedience, they had to kind of give up something to do what you taught them. Aren't you really like warmed inside? Isn't it encouraging to see them make decisions that you know is the best for them? 
And that's what God's perspective. He, it's just, he just, it, it makes his day. It blesses him, the Bible speaks, when we walk in obedience. Embracing and enacting. So embrace something as you hold it. Enact it is when you now get it and you put it into motion. When we do that with mercy and truth, it opens your heart and mind to understand. Have you ever had something you said, I would never do it that way? I don't know how you could be so nice to them. I couldn't have been that nice to that person. And it's true, you're right. Until you experience mercy and truth and learn to extend mercy and truth, and then you find yourself going beyond your own self-set limits because God is changing you from the inside out. You're learning to love in ways you didn't love. You're learning to be merciful in ways you know you're honest. You can look back and go, two years ago, two weeks ago, two minutes ago, I would have never been that nice to that person. And that is a great thing to recognize because you now are seeing that God is working in your life in a way to transform you, change you into his image and likeness. It's not that you go, wow, I'm getting it all together and get puffed up. No. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. And you start grabbing onto this and go realize, man, this is, this is so exciting to see my life changing in a way that honors God. And it helps us also... This mercy and truth works through our soul to have a deeper understanding of who God is and a greater empathy toward men. Because I believe there's a need for empathy. Empathy is that awareness of what someone's going through and, and, and it changes how you look at them and things. Does that make sense? When you're empathetic, when you, when you see someone come in, empathy teaches you, you just don't know what they're going through. They know how to smile. They know how to say hello. They shake your hand and sit down. But you don't know what they're going through. And empathy teaches you not to be so uh, presumptive. Empathy said, I don't know what they're going through. And then you get a glimpse sometimes. You get this lesson of empathy taught to you where you're, you're able to hear what that person went through the last week when you were celebrating Christmas and what they were going through, and all of a sudden, you're not so right all the time. Does that make sense? I love not being right all the time. Before I was a Christian, I was right all the time. And if you disagree with me, it's because you're wrong. It's real simple life that way. Problem is, it's dishonest. It's cold-hearted. It's not truthful. And now to see how God teaches us to have empathy and awareness that there's just a lot going on in this world. Uh, it, it, and people respect that, agreed? People, you know, I, I'll just say it this way. People don't want to hear your cold, hard facts. They really don't, even if it's truthful, because they already know it. They want to engage in a level that there's some genuineness and kindness and compassion. You remember the disciples I mean, these are 12 men that Jesus prayed all night before we picked them. He didn't just see who was on this unemployment line and take the best he could get. You know what I'm saying? He prayed all night. He picked 12 disciples. He invested into them. He spent time one-on-one. -on -one. He spent time in groups. He taught them the ways of the kingdom. Towards the end of this three-year ministry, not at the end, but closer to the end, the people have gathered, and, and the disciples have been busy. Jesus gave them assignment. They went out and ministered and shared the gospel. They come back. They're so tired, they didn't even, couldn't hardly eat. He gets them in a boat. He takes them across the Sea of Galilee. They stop, and all these people show up. And they're there all day, and the disciples are seeing how Jesus does things. And then they come to Jesus, and they say, 
the people. The people need to eat. Let's send them away so they can have food. What, don't you see the warmth? Don't you see their concern? Don't you see their interest? But what did Jesus show differently? What did he say so clearly? The Bible tells you and me that as these disciples came to him and said, we're concerned about the people do it this way. He was moved with compassion for he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And then he said, what do you have? Let's feed them with what you have. Do you see the difference? I want to be more like Christ. I'm a disciple, but sometimes I'm too much like the disciples. You know what I'm saying? I want to have awareness. I know you do too. That's why we're here today studying the Bible together. Because we realize, I I want that work to continue. I want to have the kindness and the awareness of what the needs are around us. And the only way I can have that is not by performance. It's by response. It's not by determining to do more of my own, but learning what it means to walk in obedience, which is why the next verse leads us to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Trust speaks of to have confidence in, to put confidence in, to be be bold in. And notice it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, all of it. And that's a hard thing to do. Because every time I've made a commitment to the Lord, this is, I'm giving you, I give you my all. I surrender all. Every time when I make that surrender and that conscious realization of a greater desire for sacrificial obedience, for his glory, every time, there's something that comes up in my head that I'm not actually all in. There's that one little hobby. There's that one little area. There's that one little thing that it's just not all in. And I have to say, Lord, I'm not all in on that one. Help me to get there. Help me to be there. I want all of my heart. I don't want to lean on my own understanding. You you get it. To lean on your own understanding speaks of, of supporting yourself. Finding your stability in yourself. Maybe it's your insight. Uh, maybe it's your uh, opinion, or, or maybe it's your experience. Sometimes it's your craftiness. Sometimes it's your knowledge of the Bible that you rely, I, I can just do this because I know this. Now, guess what? I don't want to lean on my own understanding. It's a terrible thing to lean on. It'd be like, it's really similar to this one. I don't think we have any anymore, but you remember the, the white plastic chairs? Some of you are evil people and own them. Okay, what are the white plastic chairs? They're the ones that a guy or a teenager will get into and rock back on. And it kind of flexes. Have you ever done it? It kind of feels cool when it flexes. Like, woo that was that was scary. A little bit of adrenaline hit. Woo-hoo. But it dumps you. It's not something you're going to want to lean on. Do you see the picture? It's like there's times we're leaning on something, and it's our own understanding. It's going to drop you. Oh, it might not kill you. But it's, it's just going to hurt. It's just not. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your path. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Acknowledge speaks to recognize. But also, when you recognize, it's, it's to, um, to find out and learn, to, to consider and know In all your ways, consider him and know him to find out and learn. In all your ways, submit to him. Learn his ways. And guess what happens? He will direct your path. 
See, when you acknowledge, you're allowing him to lead you. So whatever that area might be in your life, whatever that subtopic may be, there's an element of free will an invitation by God. He invites us to just, just, just acknowledge me in this. Let me lead you in this area. And, and it's scary, quite honestly. Sometimes it's just a little deal. It's not that big a deal. But ask any parent, what level of disobedience is approval? In other words, I just, I'm just disobeying on this one area. I'm doing good in 97 things you've asked me to do. It's still disobedience. And as a parent, we know when we're presenting you know, healthy, godly rules for our children, we know we have that rule for their benefit. And so when we learn to, in all areas and everything, acknowledge him, let him lead, it says that he shall direct your paths. When he's leading, I want you to consider and even embrace this truth. When he's leading you, he knows what's best for you. But it may not be the path you want to take. Correct? Because the path you want to take is probably going to be easier in your mind. It's much easier to go downhill than uphill. But if your goal is the lookout and you're going downhill, you've created another dilemma. And so sometimes we, gotta, we just got to remember his, it's, it's for our best. Whatever he directs us through and whatever he walks us to, it's the best route for you. Verse 7, do not be wise in your own eyes revere or fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and, and strength to your bones. And that brings me back to something I've already said. Just to be wise, practically speaking, be honest about how you are. Be honest about how you are. I have been walking with the Lord for over 30 years and this is still a challenge in my life. Because he reveals things to me now that I didn't deal with back then. It's not that they weren't present. It just wasn't his priority. But now in this season, in this time of life, he's saying, okay, now, Dan, I want you to deal with this. My natural mind says, oh, man, if I would have dealt with that earlier, I wouldn't have those situations and issues. And God said, shut it. It's not what I said. What he says is, I want you to deal with this now. I want you to be aware of this. Be honest about how you are. Can you persuade God well, God, I'm actually not that way. I wonder what his reaction would be if he was face-to-face, like the disciples saying to Jesus, well, we're not really like that. I'm sure he had to, you know, drop down, eyes rolled, like, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, it's like, it had to be there because there's a point where he's like, okay, would, would you listen for a minute, a little bit? It did happen one time. He just came to my mind. Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked Jesus. Listen, this is horrible public relations. You go getting yourself crucified, it's going to leave us all in a, in a mess. And, and, and Jesus had to, because he was aware of the other disciples with him, he had to correct him because he knew Peter wasn't listening. Peter wasn't being honest. Peter said, if, if, if they all leave you, I will never forsake you. Jesus did clarify to him, Peter, you're going to run just like the rest of them. Before the rooster crows, you would have cut out on me more than once. Peter said, no, not me, man. See, he wasn't honest with himself. He didn't understand his potential. I don't even want to know my potential. I just want to change my direction. Don't study your potential to do wrong. 
you got that down really good before you got saved. So don't study that anymore. Romans 13 verse 14 tells you and I to put on, to adorn yourself with the knowledge of the presence. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. This year going forward, let's not pretend of things we know we shouldn't do, yet we continue to do. Let's not lie to ourselves and say they won't have an influence or an impact. Because they will. They will have. And it's just like, let's make no provision. The passage mentions the word fear. It literally would convey to you and I to revere, to look up to, to stand in awe of, or to honor and respect. Depart from evil. You see what it says there, you know, fear the Lord and depart from evil. Well, what's evil? Evil is that which is contrary to God. It doesn't have to be dark. It doesn't have to come from Bill Gates' population plan. You know, it doesn't have to come from these other sources. It's that which is contrary to God. Matter of fact, the book of James tells you and I, to him who knows to do good but does not do it, to that man it is... Sin, it's, it's evil, it's contrary to his will. So you can't memorize all this stuff. You can't just like make a note and carry a notebook and you know, oh, it's all right here in the Bible, I'm gonna know it all. No, you have to be led by the Spirit. When God convicts you of a certain situation or reveals to you that this is contrary to my design for you in your life in this season, stop it. And we have to be willing to say, okay, Okay, I, I want to revere God. I want to, I want to depart from evil. It's actually better for you, we can see in verse 8. It's better for you. It, it's actually health to your flesh and strength to your bones. It's better for you. God is not planning and directing and you know, you know, inviting us into this walk with him to mess up our lives. He's actually doing it so we can understand freedom in life. So we can know what it means to really walk according to purpose. Let's move on to verse 9. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. So here's something to think historically because it applies to you personally. What you have is actually his. You are a manager, a steward of his resources. Because the earth and everything in it belongs to him. Here's a simple reality. Nope, I can check. I was just checking maybe gray hair and stuff. None of you were there in the Garden of Eden. You may feel old. You weren't there. So quite honestly, somebody owned something on this earth before you did. And it's passed along. And if the Lord tarries whatever you call your possessions, you're just a temporary steward. You're going to pass them on to perhaps family members or whatever. You may lose them in a deal. It's just not yours. And the, it's so important that we understand that God actually entrusts us. He instructs his children to manage the resources, his resources, wisely according to his purposes. And that's liberating because it's shocking when you compare it and contrast it to the American dream and American philosophy, where it's more about get more for yourself and, and call it diligence and stewardship and stuff like that. But ultimately, biblically, it's all his to begin with. He actually entrusts all of it to us and says, so you don't get too greedy? 10% off the top is mine to begin with. And the rest of it's mine too, but you're going to manage it. Let's consider a passage out of Malachi. 
Malachi chapter 3. I'm just going to read it. You'll see the association. The people were saying, God, we're, we're, just, we're, we're on track. We're on board. We're doing it the right way. Will a man rob God? God speaking to the people, to the Israelites. Yeah, you have robbed me. But you say, how did we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with the curse where you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And try me now on this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the window of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will, be, there will not be room enough to receive it. It's one of the, I think it's the only place that I've come across in the Bible. He says, put me to the test on this one. You put me to the test on this. Not a, not a formula to gain things, but you just say, listen, don't, don't, don't buy into this. Now, I, I've heard many different discussions and, and many defenses, and, and, and it's really more self-preservation and self-promoting. Some have said, well, you know, tithes is not a New Testament thing. Uh, I, wanna, I beg to differ. Hebrews 7, Genesis chapter 14. Those, you know, Genesis 14 is before Moses comes with the law. So it's a principle, a precedent set in place in a relational sense between you and God. The tithing is a part of giving. It is a part of something to be done. It supersedes the law given through Moses. And it's really simple. Honor him with what he has trusted you with. That's really the core. When tithes and offerings, what you, you give to the Lord, don't make a public display. Don't, don't be coerced, but give cheerfully, the Bible says. According to your relationship with him, between you and him, give according to his design and his direction. Because it says, as we journey right back to, to Proverbs chapter 3, it's actually to your benefit to be obedient with money and possessions. It's actually to your benefit. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. You get the cultural thrust in that. It's, it's to your benefit. Don't, don't ever let it become a psychotic form of getting more. You know what I mean? Some people do that. Like, well, I'm going to give more because God says he'll increase because I give more. No, you're just, you're trying to work out a business deal like a used car salesman or something. Just don't go there. Hope there's no car salesman here. <laughs> It's like, do you see what I'm saying? It's to our benefit. All these things that God's leading and instructing and, and inviting you and I to be a part of, it's for our benefit. It's, it was so liberating to me years ago when I started holding on to that truth, an absolute, I believe. Because I, before I held that as an absolute, I wondered why God would do this to me. How come he's taken from me? I'm just getting by. How come this is happening to me? But when I realized what he is leading you to and me through it's for my benefit because he knows what's best. So every kind of confusion or little pity party inside of my head had to then work around this simple fact. Whatever he's leading me through his word, whatever he's revealing in my heart, it's for my benefit to become more like him, to be more aware of freedom and liberty that he's given me. So let's move along. We're going to move on to verse... Uh, See, that was 9 and 10. Let's, let's wrap it up here in verse 11 and 12. Everybody loves this part. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as the father, the son, in whom he delights. I don't even have to quiz. I don't even have to get a survey. I can say right now, nobody likes getting busted. All right, nobody likes in the initial emotion 
the moment of being corrected. Men, I've seen this. I'm not saying we're the only ones, but there's this little interference. It's a fairly new term. You know, 80, 70, 60 years maybe. The male ego. Okay, so the male ego is fine when it gets to do whatever it wants. Until somebody says, You're, you need to do it this way. You need to shut up. That's not what we say, but that's what we said to ourselves. They need to shut up. Because it's like we, we don't receive correction. But yet we want correction. See, we, we admit to ourselves, I have no clue what I'm doing. And somebody says, you need to do it this way. You need to shut up. It's like weird. Because maybe, who knows what, whatever reason, but get this. You know, when, when God has given us direction, when he's correcting us, he's, he's chastening those he loves. Because I need direction. I need a daily sense of this is the way I should be going. And that's what I get through a relationship with Christ as he reveals his principles, his presence through his word. We get to learn, okay, this is how I do it. Correction is essential if you're going to mature. It's an absolute fact, even if you're not thinking spiritually. If you go to school, great, any, any academic application, you have to be able to be corrected. You have to be able to be taught. It involves, you know, you learning to follow, whether it's principles in regards to academic, whether it's disciplines in regards to athletics, whether it's the same dynamic in, in spiritual sense. Being willing to be taught, being willing to be directed. Godly correction is an expression of love. We realize that, right? So, because I've already created a gender mess in a gender weird world, I'm going to say this. Oftentimes, mom is too merciful. She doesn't want to bring correction. And oftentimes, dad, bringing a hammer. This is how it's going to be. We're not going to put up with this anymore. Isn't that true? I mean, there's a sense of like, be, be, guess what? We, we want to realize that, yeah, maybe I don't want to, Oh, I don't want to deal with this right now. But I love them. And you, mom, you do it. You know, you, this face reality. Kids know how to get in trouble when you're the tiredest. When you're the most spent and you have almost nothing left, somehow that's when the two-year-old decided to dump Cheerios out on the floor for the cat. And you're like, I don't even want to deal with this right now. And then the, well, the cat wouldn't eat it. The dog would come along and eat it. And now you've got dog throwing up in the, in the, in the you know, house. And now, you got, oh, I'm so tired. Is this not real world stuff? Realizing there's just times like, you know, I got to get up and deal with this. Even though I'm tired, I'm going to do it because it's actually the best for the child, not just for my own ease and comfort. It, it's best to do it this way. It's best to engage. I had to learn how to engage knowing who I am and how I process things. I had to receive from my wife on how to impart a, an agreed upon discipline with our children. She told me one time, hey, our daughter... She just needs, she's had a tough day. I got a call at work. I wasn't in ministry. I was working in a truck shop. Another time, and she, I got two calls that day. I get home, and Kim has this wonderful wisdom. You need to spend some time with her. Maybe take her and get her an ice cream. <laughs> I'll use the stick of an ice cream. I'm, no, I'm not rewarding her for that type of behavior. It ain't going to happen. No way. I had to stop and think. Well, all right. And it, was, it didn't happen quick. It took me a few minutes, like walking down the stairs after I met Kim at the front. I go down the stairs, and I'm like, it's not going to happen. And I had to stop and think, well, 
yeah, whatever. I don't know what. I really don't know how to deal with this situation. I ended up taking that rebellious daughter to ice cream and listened to her. And she didn't say anything. That's, now, now she's getting another correction. You know what I mean? She doesn't open up or something. So here I'm trying in my brain, what is the point of this? I'm rewarding her for bad behavior. She's not engaging. There's not a spontaneous or an instantaneous you know, benefit to this action. I get home. We're hanging out as a family. No change in countenance in this child. Nothing. I'm like, this will never happen again. The next morning, things had changed. There was something that was different. It wasn't for the daughter. It was for the dad. It was for the dad to realize just some things you just got to be, you got to be a people instead of a policy enforcer. You just got to go, okay, hey, that's life. You know, later that child shared with me how she was going through things I didn't have any knowledge of. And she needed that time just to chill. And it was so, yeah, you see my point. This element of correction. And we, as parents, we're following biblical values. When we're walking with the Lord, we want to bring correction because for the benefit of our children. How much more does God, who knows this fallen world, want to direct you and bring protection around you? And he'll correct you. His correction is for your protection, for your benefit, for your peace. He corrects you. He corrects me. It's a way of leading us through some very difficult things. You've probably read it. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Jesus said, as recorded in John chapter 16, verse 30, Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this, I give you the wrong verse. The one I'm referencing is, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. For what reason? For I have overcome the world. Tribulation there speaks of trials and difficulties. Jesus said to you and to me, these things I've spoken to you. So he's telling his disciples in John chapter 16, life's going to be tough. I'm aware of that. In this world, you will have tribulations, but, see, here's the corrective nature that we pulled out of Proverbs, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Do you know he said that to them before he went to the cross? He had, they had to process what he was talking about. But later, boy, did it come to understanding when they've seen him conquer death, when they've seen him conquer hell and all darkness and rise above this fallen world. In this world, you will have cheer. Jesus understands. God's not detached. He's not um, uh, unaware, separated, you know, not knowing what we're going through. We're going to take communion today. Communion is for Christians, followers of Jesus Christ. It's not a, a gathering, you know, it's just something you do because you're a part of some club in the church terms. It's got nothing to do with that. What it is is about a relationship. Jesus said in regards to communion, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. We're told in Isaiah chapter 53, well, let's bring this up, Isaiah chapter 53. We're told a little bit about what he has went through. We're told, as you can read, he's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our sorrows, or borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, 
yet we consider, esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. In other words, separated from God, afflicted. Going on in verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God is not detached, unaware of human suffering. He actually came as a man, endured a level of suffering that you'll never know. I will never know. The magnitude of what it would be to carry the sins of the world on your own heart and being for the forgiveness of humanity when humanity is the one that rejected you. You can't get it. Pray right now. God, thank you for your word today. Lord, you have put an emphasis upon our hearts. You know us uniquely, beautifully, and individually. And you, God, have, have brought to our awareness particular things, specific things. Not that we would somehow feel like a failure, but rather that we would understand your deep love in a greater way. That you would direct us and correct us and lead us. And so, Lord, we just thank you, Jesus, for who you are. Thank you. And, and I speak for those of us who know you, God. But I address, my, address those of you who would be hearing now. If you don't know Jesus, you, you have only a wonder, a, a pondering of what this means, this communion. Because you don't have a relationship with him yet. To have that relationship, it begins at the very starting point. It begins with this simple reality. You admit that you need his forgiveness. Literally, in your heart of hearts right now, you're admitting, God, I know I need your forgiveness. I, I don't even want to get into the details of the things I've done. I know you know them. But you offer me forgiveness, and I ask that you would forgive me. That, Jesus, you would give me this new life you speak of. Forgiven me of the things I've done against you. For you are God, and only you can forgive me. And I, I would then also ask God that, as you've forgiven me and, and as you now have, I guess, made me a new, new person born again, help me not go back to what I used to do. Help me not be the way I used to be. Help me to repent and turn to you, to live this freedom life, this real life that you speak of. I put my trust in you, Jesus. We put our trust in you, Jesus, for you're worthy of our praise. We sing to you and thank you for all that you are. In your name, Jesus, say, amen.